Have you ever called up a friend and said, Hey, can you meet me for lunch tomorrow? 12 noon. And you arrive at 12 noon. And you're sitting there. And sitting there. And sitting there. 12.30 comes by. The friend finally strolls in the door. Half hour late. Have you ever called a friend on the phone and left a message on their voicemail saying, Hey, I got some really good news. You're calling them on a Monday and you're saying, Hey, I got some great news. I got a new job. I want to tell you about it. Will you call me back? Monday rolls by. Tuesday rolls by. Wednesday rolls by. Thursday. Friday. Saturday, your friend calls. Oh, sorry, I've just been so busy lately. I, I, I couldn't get back to you. I'm sorry. It's been so busy. been so busy. We all know situations like this, don't we? Perhaps we've had others do this to us. Perhaps we've done this same thing to others. But what lies behind these kinds of statements? Oh, sorry, I, I lost track of time. Sorry, I've been so busy lately, I just, I don't know, I, I, sorry about that, I just, time got the best of me. What lies behind those kinds of excuses, friends? Why does a person say such things? I submit to you the answer is very simple. The answer is they don't value or give priority to spending time with their friend. They don't value or give priority to spending time with that friend. You see, we put effort into things that we think are important. We're on time to a job interview. Why? Because it's incredibly important that we be on time to a job interview. We put effort into things that we value, into things that are a priority in our lives. And we leave by the wayside those things that just, well, I can be 30 minutes late. Well, I, I don't need to call them back right away. Well, that can wait a little bit. That's, that's not a priority. It's just not that important to me. Friends, what's happening in the book of Haggai is a case of mixed up priorities. What's happening in the book of Haggai is a situation in which a people group, the children of Israel, are looking up at God and saying, well, we just don't have time to, uh, to build your temple. We don't have time. we got other things to do. We're so busy. Uh, there, uh, we, we have so many things over here that we just cannot focus on your temple, Lord. What's happening in Haggai chapter 1 as we begin our study today is we are seeing a situation in which priorities are all mixed up. Instead of building God's house, the temple, the children of Israel are instead building up their own houses, their own personal homes with worldly luxuries. The title of my message today is Which House Are We Building? Which house are we building? 
Let's learn a little bit about mixed up priorities from the book of Haggai. First, before we get into the book of Haggai, I want to go over some uh, what's happening in Haggai. Some of you are going, I've never even, I don't even know where this book is in the Old Testament. It's toward the very end of the Old Testament in case you're still searching for it. Haggai, I want to list, give you some important dates to be, in, to be mindful of. Take a look at this. First, important dates in Haggai. From 605 to 586 B.C., the nation of Babylon was conquering Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel. They had, Nebuchadnezzar had come in, had destroyed Jerusalem, and three times, beginning in 605 and ending in 586, three times he had taken people of, the people of Judah captive to Babylon. It ended in 586 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. They go off to Babylon. Well, what happens? 539 B.C. comes around. A new king rises up. Babylon is no longer the authority. Now, Persia comes in. King Cyrus of Persia comes in, and Persia conquers Babylon. And believe it or not, King Cyrus finds a uh, prophecy in Isaiah that names him by name and says a man by the name of Cyrus is going to take the people of Israel out of Babylon and back to their homeland. And Cyrus desires to fulfill that prophecy. And so he turns to the children of Israel and he says, go home. You can go home. You can go home. I will give you some monies from the king's treasury himself. And I will let you go home and build your temple again. 539 B.C. So the children of Israel go home. 539 to 538 B.C., they're walking all the way back to Jerusalem. They arrive, and in 538 B.C., they begin again to build the temple, the second temple in Jerusalem. But in due time, Cyrus dies. Two of his sons take over. And sometime, we don't know the exact historical date, but sometime between 539 and 520 B.C., the temple construction ceases. We don't know the date. We know it was before 520. We know it was after 539. But sometime in that time frame, the children of Israel lost energy, lost hope, lost a desire to work, and they stopped building the temple. 520 B.C. comes around and Haggai prophesies in Jerusalem. The book of Haggai is set in 520 B.C. and Haggai is a prophet who begins to tell the children of Israel what they are doing wrong and what they need to do. What are the main characters in the book of Haggai? First, uh, we've got Haggai. Who is Haggai? Haggai is a prophet. Um, some scholars believe that he was born in Babylon in exile. Others say, well, no, he, he saw the very, he was a young lad when Babylon conquered Jerusalem. We don't know. We truly do not know. We can only speculate. But Haggai, there's not a lot written about the, the person of Haggai. What we find is what we see in Haggai and a little bit in Ezra chapter 5 and 6. Haggai, we know, was a faithful man of the Lord, the Lord's prophet. Secondly, there was Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel, say that ten times fast, 
was the leader of Israel's return from Babylon. When King Cyrus said, go home, Zerubbabel was one of the leaders that took the children of Israel from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So he was their political leader, if you will. Governor, if you will. Third, there's Joshua, the high priest. Joshua was the spiritual leader of Israel. Um, Of course, this is not the same Joshua that we read about uh, in the book of Joshua, but this is a later Joshua who is the high priest at the time in Israel. He's not a major character in this book. He's mentioned a few times. Interestingly enough, if you want to do some study on Joshua, turn to Zechariah 3 and you can read a little bit about a vision that the prophet Zechariah has of this man, Joshua. And finally, King Darius. King Darius, also known as Darius I or Darius the Great. Darius is the king of Persia in 520 B.C. Darius is the king of Persia in 520 B.C. And he is a king who, like Cyrus, is going to show a good deal of favor toward the people of Israel. All right. That gives you a little bit of a background. Uh, That's a crash course in Haggai. But now I want to get to the text. Turn to Haggai chapter 1. We're going to maneuver through this relatively quickly. We're going to go through the whole first chapter today and then split up chapter 2 for the next two Sundays. But Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. I'm going to read it all the way through and then we're going to pick it apart piece by piece. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruin? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and you bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag of holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. That I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withhold its fruit. For I called for I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. 
Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this study, we pray your spirit would guide us and lead us. Father, it's, uh, this happened 2,500 years ago. And it is often difficult for us to identify to enter into that world and to understand what it might have been like. I pray, Father, that we would be able to get a glimpse of what you were doing 2,500 years ago in Jerusalem. I pray, Lord, that we would learn from the mistakes of the Israelites and that we would have good priorities in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 1 and 2, one more time. In the second year of King Darius, the sixth month, the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, this is what the Lord says to them, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, this people says, that is Israel says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Interestingly enough, in verse 1, the the details of the dating here are phenomenal because it's very rare in Scripture to see a date such as this. But in in Haggai, there are three or four instances in which Haggai notes a date down and we are able today, 2,500 years later, to identify the precise day that this was. Now, this is according to the Jewish calendar, but if we were to take this into English, the actual day that this took place on was August the 29th, 520 B.C. August 29, 520 B.C. This is what Haggai spoke to the to, to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. And he gives him a prophecy. He says, Thus speaks the Lord to you. The Lord says, This people says, The time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. The first of Haggai's prophecies here, as you can tell, are spoken directly to the political and to the spiritual leader of Israel, to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. And notice carefully the message that the Lord has for these two leaders. It is not simply that the Jews have stopped building the temple. The message that he gives is not simply, see, you've stopped building. No, it is more than that. The prophecy that Haggai gives to them, coming from the Lord Himself, is not only have you stopped building the temple, but you've said, I timed it just right, but you said, the time is not right. Not only have you stopped building the temple, but you've said, bad timing. I lost track of time. Um, uh, we're busy. Oh, we we've got so much to do. There's you know there's so many problems we got to deal with. The time's just not right, Lord. 
They've stopped building. And moreover than that, more, moreover, they've made excuses. What did the Jews mean by this statement? What did the Israelites mean by this statement? The time is not right. A lot of scholars speculate what they were referring to because there must have been a reason behind that excuse. There must have been something hindering them from temple construction. So I want to ask the question, why did the second temple construction cease? Why did the Israelites stop building the temple? Why? Scholars have given three answers over time. And I think all three of them have a little bit of validity, um, actually. The third, uh, perhaps the most. But the first is this. One of the reasons why they stopped building the temple was their conflict with the Samaritans. Their conflict with the Samaritans. You say, who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans, you may remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, The Samaritans are people who are half-Israelites. They're half-breeds. These were people who were taken away 150 years earlier to Assyria in the north. These were Israelites from the tribe of Israel, the northern kingdom, who were taken to Assyria in the north. They intermarried and they came back down toward the land in latter years. They were half-breeds. They were half-Israelite, half-Assyrian, Samaritan. The southern tribe of Judah, who were pure breeds, if you will, they were the the pure Israel. Well, they they had an attitude about that, and they had a a an attitude of superiority. Well, we're we're full Israel, and you 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 Samaritans, you're you're half breeds, you're half pagan, half Assyrian. And so when the Jews came, when, the, when Judah came back from Babylon and arrived in 538 BC, and all these Samaritans that are there with them, there was internal strife beginning to happen. You can read about this a lot in the book of Ezra, which corresponds to Haggai. The book of Ezra is right around the time that Haggai was prophesying. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 1 of Ezra, it mentions Haggai by name. But take a look at this passage in Ezra chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, about their conflict with the Samaritans. It says this, Then the people of the land, that is the Samaritans, tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building the temple and hired counselors, that is lawyers, against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia, from 539 to 520 B.C., and believe it or not, it actually went beyond that. They actually they were causing trouble for another hundred years. The Jews were frustrated. The people of Judah were frustrated by the Samaritans. The Samaritans were hampering their efforts. They were bringing in lawyers and saying, well, we don't want you to have this land. We don't want you to be building here. We want you to honor us and pay taxes to us. We've been here. You've been gone for 70 years in Babylon. The Samaritans repeatedly hired lawyers to hinder their progress. It is estimated that the governors of the Samaritans found favor in the eyes of the Persian kings after Cyrus died and before Darius reigned. So between Cyrus and between Darius, there were two kings between 529 to 522 B.C. And it is estimated that it was during that time that the temple construction stopped because of the constant harassment with the Samaritans. 
Second reason. Second reason why the temple construction may have stopped. Two, a lack of funds and resources. A lack of funds and resources. Now, interestingly enough, when King Cyrus let the people of Judah go to Jerusalem, you know what he told them? He says, you can take money from my treasury and build your temple. He gave them all the temple items which Babylon had taken from them. He gave it all back in 539 B.C. And moreover, he said, Judah, take whatever money you need from my treasury and build your temple. That is to say, you're going to get tax dollars from Persia. You're going to get tax revenue from Persia. Cyrus said, I'm going to publicly finance your temple with our money. That was Cyrus's promise to Judah. But then Cyrus died. And his sons took over. And it is during that time that we estimate that his sons stopped the revenue. I have a little note behind me. Circa around 529 to 522 B.C., the incessant legal wrangling from the Samaritan governors probably reduced or possibly eliminated Israel's ability to receive Persian monies for building the temple in Jerusalem. What they were promised went away. The monies that they were promised from Persia all of a sudden ceased. And the Jews perhaps had trouble finding funds, finding resources for their temple. But you see, this answer is both a yes and a no. This answer is both credible and both not credible. See, because it is true that Persia cut off funds. But take a look at chapter 1, verse 3 of Haggai. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Did you catch that? What are the Jews living in? Paneled houses. That is to say, wood paneled houses from the cedars of Lebanon, the finest wood in the Mediterranean. This was the same wood that the people of Judah had put up in their homes, their personal homes, while the temple construction stopped. Robert Alden, a scholar, in response to reading this verse, he wrote this. He said, The people were able to find the resources to panel their houses, so economics could not have been the primary reason for the lag in building the temple. I do believe it was a reason in part. But in the end, we look at their homes, Haggai says, and the Lord says through Haggai, look at your houses. If your houses have this much, how come my temple has nothing? If your houses have panels from, from Lebanon, how come my temple lies in shambles? We might ask the question, where did they get these expensive interior panels? Where did they come from in the first place? If times were so tough in Jerusalem after exile in Babylon, it is here where some scholars speculate, unfortunately, that it is possible that some of the Israelites redirected resources originally meant for the temple and put them in their home. I'll say that again. Some scholars speculate here that the, the, the Israelites becoming discouraged and, and, and losing hope and, and desire to build the temple. There's a lot of building supplies sitting there. I'll just take just, just a couple. 
I'll just take a few. I only need. I only got a 200 square foot home over here. Let me put those up. It is estimated that they. The only reason they would have had the means to have these panels is if they were already given for the temple to begin with. Stealing company resources. But in this case, relocating Jewish temple panels to one's private residence is quite a bit different than taking post-it notes from work. It's a little more serious than that. God takes that a little bit more seriously. It is this issue, friends, it is this issue that we're coming to that marks the most definitive reason why the Israelites ceased working on the temple. Three, they had the wrong priorities. They had the wrong priorities. They elevated their personal house over God's house. Their personal home was greater to them than building God's house. That was their priority. That was what they esteemed. They were building the wrong house. Moreover, they were explaining away their work stoppage by claiming, hey, it's just not good timing right now. The conditions aren't right. Oh, there's so many legal problems with the Samaritans. Oh, well, we don't have money. We don't have resources. Persia's cut ties with us. Our homes... Our homes are in shambles. They need some work. How can we build God's house in a time like this? It's just not good timing. Do we do this? Do we elevate our personal homes over God's house? Um, Orange County, California. This is a... This is a real estate market. This is, uh, you, you know, this is where real estate is, is, you know, perhaps at the best in the nation. Homes are of utmost importance in Orange County. If you own a home, boy, that that's that's a big deal. And people invest time and money in their home. They 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 build up their homes. They they manicure their lawns. We we put all this time and effort into making sure everything's just right, just perfect, just finely laid out. What about God's house? Are we putting the same amount of effort? Are we putting more effort into God's house than our house? That was the problem 2,500 years ago. I submit to you the times haven't changed much. Um, What kind of priority are we putting on God's house? There would be consequences for their failure to build God's temple. God had consequences in store for them and had already, in fact, been giving them these consequences. Take a look at verse 5. Verse 5 and 6. Haggai, speaking the word of the Lord, says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That is, take stock. Stop for a minute and look around. Consider your ways. You have sown much and you bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but nobody's warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag of holes. Here we see the standard of living 
in Israel has greatly deteriorated since the day the temple stopped being built. Here we see the standard of living has gone down the tubes for the people of Judah as a result of their work stoppage. You sow much, you bring in little. You eat, you don't have enough. You drink, you're not filled. You clothe yourselves, but nobody's warm. You earn wages, but you put it into a bag with holes. The big picture God is painting through the prophet Haggai in verses 5 and 6 is that Israel's current state of famine, drought, hunger, and economic inflation is due, is due to their refusal to build God's temple. Israel's sin has kept them from experiencing blessing and contentment. You know, oddly enough, uh, we're often tempted to sin because sin uh, appears to satisfy, right? We're tempted to sin because sin looks good, it looks pleasurable, it looks like it will fulfill us, it looks like it'll bring us contentment, and so we take a bite. And so we follow the path of sin. But in the end, we find out that in fact, it didn't satisfy, it didn't bring me contentment, it didn't allow me to feel at peace and whole and complete. That's what sin does every single time. It appears to satisfy, bring contentment, bring peace, bring joy. And in the end, you feel more empty when you sin than when you started. Sure, it brings temporary pleasure. Sure, it brings temporary contentment. But lasting? Never. Never. God is saying through Haggai here, you've sinned, Israel. You haven't built my house. And as a result of that, you try all you can to sow seed. You try all you can to eat the delicacies, to drink the wine, to clothe yourselves with fine linen, to earn all the money you can, and in the end, Israel, as a result of your sin, I will see to it that all of those things you desire fall to the ground. There's famine, there's drought, there's hunger, there's inflation ravaging through the land right now. It is not God's desire, however, to curse. It is not God's desire to send these things upon his children. It is not his desire to bring about weakening conditions, a poor standard of living, upon his people. And so the Lord urges Israel to shape up and build his temple. Verse 7 and 8. He says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Once again, take stock. Stop and pause. Look around. Don't you, re- don't you see the famine around you? He says, verse 8, Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. Go get the wood and start building again. As we will see in just a few moments, not right now, but in just a few moments, verse seven and, uh, verses 7 and 8, 8 in particular, you're going to see is the crescendo, is the climax, if you will, of this first chapter. This is what the Lord wants. I want you to build my house. Build my house. Why? That I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. God desires pleasure and glory. 
He desires to be worshipped by His creation and to see His creation honor Him with their mouth and with their hands. In the case of Israel in 520 B.C., the temple was the primary meeting place between God and man. It was the place, the location, where man came to worship God. And so it was only natural for God to desire that that place of worship be rebuilt, that He might take pleasure in it and be glorified. Yet again in verses 9, and in verse 9, He reminds them one more time of the path of sin that they've taken. Take a look one more time at, at, at verse 9 now. He says again, this, we might find this very familiar, He says, You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. You say, uh, I'm seeing a lot of patterns here. There's a lot of repetition. Why does he keep doing this? Good question. Um, There's actually a very interesting literary structure taking place here. Uh, It is used in both Hebrew and the Greek language and in many other languages, in particular during the during the time of Christ, to bring to a crescendo what the message was. It's called a chiastic structure. For just two minutes here, I want us to learn about this, because this is important. You will see this in Scripture if you look for it. Uh, not all the time, but, but very often this takes place, and it's taking place here. What is a chiastic structure? We'll take a look and just see if you notice the pattern. In verses 3 and 4, God says, you're building the wrong house. He says, Judah, you're building the wrong house. House. You're building your house and not mine. In verses 5 and 6, God says, Because you've done this, I'm going to bring about judgment, famine, drought, hunger, inflation. Because you've built the wrong house, because you've sinned against me, you're going to be judged. Crescendo, verses 7 and 8, God brings his command. He says, Build my house. Build my house. This is what I want you to do. Verse 9a. God's judgment again. If you look at the start of verse 9, what is he talking about there? You've sown much, you've brought in little. The things that you did bring in, I blew it away. Famine, drought, hunger, inflation. And finally, verse 9b. You're building the wrong house, he says again at the end of verse 9. Do you see the pattern that is being developed here? Friends, this is not by accident. Haggai, through the word of the Lord, is bringing this to a stopping point. He's saying, you've built the wrong house. You've built the wrong house. God is bringing judgment because of it. He's bringing judgment because of it. Build His house. Build it. This is the climax. This is what I want from you. Friends, this chiastic structure, this, this pattern, this symmetrical pattern you see is not by accident. It's very intentional. And those that heard it would have recognized it as they heard it being spoken to them. As we move toward verse 10, for a third and final time in the, prophecy, in the first chapter of Haggai, the Lord is going to remind Israel that their current state of impoverished living is due to their refusal to build God's house. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land, and the mountains, on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, and whatever the ground brings forth, 
on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. This is the third time now that he has mentioned his judgment upon them for their failure to build his house. You see, uh, third time's a charm here. He's, he's, he's using repetition to say, do you see how incredibly important it is to me, God says, that you build the right house? Do you see how incredibly important it is to me, God says, that you build the right house? Not your house, my house. Three times he tells them, you are suffering today because you've sinned and not built my house. How would the people respond? How would the people respond to Haggai's message? Take a look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the political leader, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, the spiritual leader, with all the remnant of the people, that is to say the remnant that came from Babylon, they all obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Proper response. Now they're getting it right. They heard the message from God. And they obeyed and they feared. They showed reverence. They showed respect. Three times they were told that their famine, their drought, their hunger and inflation were due to their refusal to build God's house. And now they had finally recognized why they were experiencing these consequences. And they obeyed and they feared the Lord. I, I, I often wonder, actually, um, uh, why, why did it come to this point? You know, these people who had come from Babylon, they were no stranger to the law. They were no stranger to the Word of God. They, they must have known that what they were doing was wrong. And yet of all the 50,000 people in Jerusalem who had come from Babylon, of all those 50,000 who had come back and started building this temple, and then they had stopped for probably five, maybe ten years, it took Haggai to bring them back. It took one prophet to speak the word of the Lord and to usher them back into obedience. I wonder how, how stubborn, how, how calloused must they have been to not see the error of their ways. But I suppose that's what sin does. It blinds us. It calluses our hearts. We see whole populations of people, 50,000 in Judah, who didn't know for five or ten years that what they were doing in not building God's house was the reason for their famine, their drought, their inflation, their hunger. How could they not see that? It takes a lot of... uh, It takes a lot of guts for a guy like Haggai to stand up in a moment like that. It takes a lot of guts for uh, each of us. In a time where a group or a family or friends or, or, or business associates are in sin, it takes a lot of guts to stand up and say, Hey, uh, I'm calling you out on this. What you're doing is wrong. And you need to turn around. 
This blindness happened on a mass scale. They were afflicted because they had shamed the reputation of God Almighty. They had left his house in shambles. Friends, which house are we building, I ask again? Like the Israelites of 520 B.C., we are entrusted with God's house. It is not the temple. We're entrusted with the church, the body of Christ. Christ is its head, and we are but members, but we have a role. We have a responsibility. We've got to build excellently. Build in such a way that it is worthy of praise. Is it time for us to dwell in our paneled houses while the temple lies in ruins? My house, God says, is in ruins and every one of you runs to his own house. Which house are we going to build? Verse 13 to 15 as we close. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came, and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day in the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. They obeyed. They heard the message from God. They obeyed. They feared the presence of the Lord. And they started to have a change of heart. Verse 13, the Lord assures them, in spite of your sin, in spite of my judgment upon you, God assures Israel that he is with them. Verse 13, despite the fact that his house lies in ruins, God's presence is still with them. I am with you. It's the same message God gave to Moses in Exodus 3. I am with you. This is the same message Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew 28. I am with you always even to the end of the age. God promises His presence with us even when we don't build His house. Tremendous God. Merciful God that we have. Even when we leave His house, His temple, His church in shambles, He says, I'm still with you. I will guide you if you will but turn to Me. Encouraged by God's presence and stirred up by the Lord Himself, the people return and they begin to build. Those of you with a sharp eye, in verse 15, you're going to notice that the date is different from the date that we started with. You'll notice in verse 1, the prophecy is given in the sixth month on the first day. And it is until verse 15, on the 24th day, that the people begin to build again. You say, why the delay? I don't know, we can only speculate. Maybe it was uh, three weeks of national repentance. Maybe it was three weeks of, of, of preparing uh, planning and, and preparing supplies and the physical work was yet to be done three weeks later. We don't know. But in the end, the time delay is really of little significance. What's important to note here is that the people heard the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Haggai and they obeyed. They obeyed. Application. What can we learn from this, friends? How can we learn from this first chapter in Haggai? Again, we're going to be in this study two more Sundays. I encourage you to be here. It's a great, great book. First, I want to point this out. In Old Testament times, building God's house, the temple, was of utmost importance. Today, God's desire to see the church built up and strengthened is no less important. Truly, that is a principle that we can apply here. Um, we are not the temple. Um, 
We are the church. Christ is our head, and we are members in it. But this house, this family, this body of believers, building this up and strengthening this is no less important than building God's temple 2,500 years ago. What are you doing to build this house? What are you doing to build up this church? Are you, are you building this church? Are you contributing? Are you working in it? Are you volunteering? Are you tithing? Are you giving to the work of the Lord? Are you giving your time, resources, and money to the Lord? Number two, the Israelites sought personal comfort and satisfaction, but instead received cursing. Let us be reminded that seeking after worldly luxuries is the antithesis. It is the exact opposite of what God requires of us. The Israelites perhaps took temple resources and put them up in their home. What are we focused on? What is our priority? Is it worldly luxuries? Is it the landscaping of our homes? Is it the tile? Is it, is it making sure everything is just, just perfect and, and throwing all of our time and money and effort into our personal home? Or are, is there something greater than that? Of course there is. Of course there is. And is, is it important that we um, uh, put together a nice home, a place to raise our children and our families? And of course it is. And, and, and it's important to, to make wise investments on a physical level. But ultimately, friends, we should be devoting much more time to God's house than to our own house. We should be devoting much more time to the work of the Lord than to our own hobbies, our own interests, the own renovation of our own homes. Number three, invest your time, money, and resources in the work of the Lord. Our home should not be given more attention than God's house. Friends, which house are you building? Which house are you building? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, you are a good God. And in spite of our sin, yet still you promised to be with us. You told that to Moses. You told that to David. Jesus told that to his disciples. You told that to the people of Israel through Haggai 2,500 years ago. You are with us even when we panel our own homes and forsake your house. Father, may we learn from this uh, story today. May we invest in the family at Coast Bible Church. This is a special place, Lord, where you are being worshipped, where people are being saved eternally, where people are following you in baptism. They're being obedient and faithful to your command where lives are being made whole and complete. Father, this is the place where we should be investing. The community around us is the place that we need to be light in the world. Father, help us to not so much focus on ourselves and our own homes and our own hobbies, but instead to devote proper time to you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.